I'm not sure how many of you are keeping tabs on where we're at uh, with COVID and the pandemic. Most people seem to agree there's a bit of consensus that we're now entering into what is going to be referred to as the post-pandemic phase of this. It doesn't mean COVID's done with. Obviously, there's, there's still that concern, and we want to pray that uh, God keeps us safe health-wise. But as far as getting back to more normal activities, people getting back to more of life pre-pandemic, it, it just seems to be the phase that we're entering into. And as you can imagine, uh, one of the areas that has uh, interested me is what does that mean for the church? Um, and certain things have changed. Many things are returning back to what they were. But I'm curious whether or not what we've just been through means we should be adapting, maybe changing certain ways of which we do ministry. Obviously, a lot more stuff now is online uh, than it once was. The church is not the only area where this uh, seems to be a matter of concern or maybe people wanting to look into what is the new normal. Uh, maybe you've heard about uh, the New York Times just recently is trying to encourage their staff to return to work just three days a week. Uh, and there's a big dust up over that. And part of a, it is uh, the pushback is a lot of the workers are saying, you know what, because of inflation, uh, commuting to work is a real problem now. And I get that. But I'm not sure that's the only reason. I have a feeling that a lot of people are like the idea of not sitting in traffic, both going to work and, and coming back from work. If you had to drive the Beltline uh, for your job before the pandemic and you don't now, you, you probably give thanks to God for that. Um, there's also uh, the, the ease of maybe just rolling out of bed running a comb through your hair, just putting on a nice shirt and hopping on your computer as opposed to having to go through all the work to actually get ready and drive into the office. So while I think there are some genuine things that might encourage people to want to stay with how life became during the pandemic, there's probably a lot of other reasons uh, why they prefer those, those new ways of doing things. What's interesting is, is that it's had a real effect on us. Uh, so much of our lives have gone virtual. Uh, there's less face-to-face. -face. We're getting back to it a little bit, but, but it has had what I'm going to say some aftermath or, or some post-pandemic effects on us. And the one that I was uh, interesting, uh, I, I came across was there are a lot of young professionals who absolutely hate their job. And it's not for the reasons that you would automatically assume, like you go through school all those years, you get your degree, and your career is nothing what you imagined it would be. That's not the reasoning behind it. It's a much more fundamental reason. It goes much deeper than that. It has to do with what sin has done to work. And it's not that sin has turned work into a four-letter word, and in some ways it has, but it's actually started to, or maybe for a long time, has tried to detour one of the most beautiful things that God has built into his amazing creation of this world and our lives. And that is, is that God has hardwired into us this deep desire to actually want to be helpful to one another. Uh, not only were we created to be in a relationship with God, and thank God we are, but we're also created to be in a relationship with each other, sometimes face-to-face, -face, sometimes not. But part of that hardwiring is, is that God designed us so that we could actually matter to each other, or as our theme today is, so that our lives would actually make a difference. I chose three specific readings for our lessons this morning, and every one of them has to do with this hardwiring to want to be helpful and to make a difference. The Shunammite couple didn't expect anything from Elisha in return for their generosity. They just wanted to provide him a room where he could stay. 
recognizing he was a man of God, he had things he needed to do, but they wanted to be helpful. You notice what Paul wrote to the Galatians. One verse really sums it up. One of the reasons why God created us was to do good. And originally that was natural to us. Not only did we have the deep desire, but we had the ability to actually live and function that way. And of course, our Lord himself tells us, what I want you to be busy doing until I return is making sure that your faith in your life matters to other people. And so God help us to actually do that. Since none of us knows when the good Lord will be back, until that day happens, hopefully he grants us not only the opportunities, but also the desire and strength to do the good that God has created us to do. And so the real problem with young professionals today is they hate their job because they think it just doesn't matter. They want their lives to make a difference, and it's a good desire, but for many of them they're finding, especially post-pandemic, that it feels like, it seems like what they do doesn't matter. Wouldn't you know the good Lord would provide us a lesson of a man that a name we don't even know, but he is an example setter for us. And God uses him to remind us that this is how he created us and that with God's help, we can truly make a difference. Not only by serving God and bringing glory to his name, but by also actually doing good for one another to actually live in such a way where our faith does shine and our lives do make a difference. make it clear that God isn't saying we're to go out and save the world. That's his son's job. But God does want us to make a difference. A couple of grapes, a couple of carrots tonight might not matter to some people, but it did to him. Our lesson today comes from the Gospel of Mark, the 14th chapter. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a, a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. I'd also like to call to your attention that this same lesson is recorded for us in the other two synoptic gospels of Matthew and Luke, and we will make a few references to those, hopefully to get the bigger picture. Let me begin by setting the context for you that this actually takes place on Thursday of Holy Week. And while we tend to focus on the things in the evening, what this text compels us to do is actually look to earlier in the day, probably about a day's worth of time worth uh, before Jesus is nailed to the cross to not only pay for our sins, but to undo the effects of evil and what it has done to this life and eternal life. 
Amongst all of the activities, sometimes I think we overlook the fact that this, while it's known as Holy Week to us, was known as a different festival to the disciples and to Jesus, of course. It was the Week of Unleavened Bread which was for a week they had to get rid of all of the yeast in their house as a symbol of what Messiah was going to come and do, get rid of sin out of their lives. The celebration of this feast culminated in one of the highest festivals, one of the high holidays of the Jewish calendar year, and that was Passover. Now, a couple of the disciples, and maybe all of them as far as we know, but at least a couple felt compelled to voice a question to Jesus, especially given the logistics. What are we going to do about celebrating. It was a mandatory festival according to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, and so of course it was on their minds. Well, Jesus tells them, well, there's a lot of preparations that need to be made. This was the day of the week when the lamb would be slaughtered, and of course it had to be roasted in a very specific way. Besides getting the meat ready, they also had to purchase other foods like spices, bitter herbs. Those also had to be prepared for the Passover celebration. And so these disciples are very wise to look into the fact that we need to be busy doing some of these things, even though Jesus had spent a good majority of that week teaching people and doing his best to lead them to the truth. Now, Mark only calls them two disciples, but if we look to Luke's account, we actually know that it's Peter and John. So those aren't really the lesser known guys we're going to talk about, at least not in detail, because as far as the disciples go, they were probably two of the more prominent. But God does use them to highlight for us, and maybe you're aware of this, that beginning on Palm Sunday, Jesus chose to remain in the nearby village of Bethany, not actually live in the city of Jerusalem. And Bethany being as small as it is and already a guest at somebody else's house, he didn't really have the wherewithal to decide to celebrate the Passover there. So the logical choice was somewhere in Jerusalem, and yet those preparations needed to be made. And so Peter and John became the components for that preparation. So at this point, I would like to simply point out what Jesus says to them and just kind of have a discussion, um, because sometimes I think this section of Scripture has a little bit of baggage. And basically what Jesus says is, you will go into Jerusalem, you're going to meet a man carrying this pitcher of water, and you need to follow him to a specific house. Now, for all of my life, and maybe it goes back to when I was taught these things as a child, I just made a simple assumption. This is all a big miracle. Jesus, being the Son of God, looks ahead into the future. He knows all things, and he basically describes for Peter and John what's going to happen. And while that's maybe a possibility, it is far more likely that this was a very much planned event, a planned event by Jesus himself. And part of that comes down to the fact that he's talking about this specific thing that's going to happen in what you would call a simple future. The grammar kind of helps us to understand this is something that was already intended to happen, whereas almost all of the other verbs are in the subjunctive, and you're going, so what? None of that stuff matters to me. The point is, is that the context is basically uncertain about what might happen, and yet when Jesus talks about things that must happen, it's as if he's describing something that he has already planned out. The one miraculous thing might be the timing on this guy carrying a jar of water. But then on the other hand, I think we have to account for the fact that Jesus might have already prepped somebody to say, I'm going to send a couple disciples in, watch for them, and then lead them to this house. I'm going to let you kind of wrestle with that and figure out whether that was miraculous or just normal. But it's the rest of the story that we have to take note of. It has to do with a couple key words. 
when Jesus tells Peter and John to speak to the owner of the house, and that's basically the lesser man that we're studying today, the man who owned the house, he doesn't say you need to identify me as Jesus. And he doesn't say you need to identify me to him as a rabbi, which either one of those would have immediately sent up a red flag going, this guy needs my attention. No, he refers to him as the teacher. It seems that there was some familiarity between Jesus and this owner of the house where the disciples didn't even need to name drop or anything. Just tell them the teacher wants to know. And then he also talks about my guest room. Now, where am I going with all this? It's to give us insight into what this man actually does. And there's several things and customs we need to understand that are taking place. And sometimes, while it takes a while to work through the context, that's where God puts a lot of the story, if you will, and a lot of the information. Let me show you how that works out. You see, a lot of homes in ancient Israel had an upper room, so that, that's no big deal. Even the simplest of homes oftentimes would have a flat roof that served as an extra room. And if the family wasn't making use of that upper room, then oftentimes it would become the guest room, or it would actually be a place where travelers could be hosted. And it was a custom in those days that if somebody was traveling and didn't have a place to stay, you went to the city center, and the, the inhabitants of that town were supposed to go out and show hospitality. And if you had an extra room, you were supposed to invite them home. Of course, back then, uh, conditions were different. It wasn't as nearly as violent or dangerous to invite a total stranger into your house. But it was mostly amongst fellow Israelites, and so it was usually pretty safe and calm. The point is, this wasn't out of the norm. In fact, that's what we had in our Old Testament lesson. This well-to-do couple, the Shunammite couple, said, you know what, we got this extra space. They didn't have any children, and you'll read that in the rest of that story. Why don't we let this man of God use our upper room? Okay, in most homes, that's how it worked. You had one upper room. It could be used for that. When Jesus uses this word guest room, that's kataluma. Well, there's something special about this word. He's not just talking about this upper room that you might find amongst many other houses. There's only one other place in all of the New Testament this word kataluma is used, and that's in Luke's account of the birth of our Savior. And there it is properly translated as in. You see, Jesus was not sending Peter and John to go find some homeowner and impose upon them and say, well, Jesus is Jesus, so we get to use your upper room, and you don't. Most likely, Jesus had prearranged with an owner of an inn to use one of the upper rooms for the Passover. And by the way, if it's never been explained to you before, Jesus was the host of this Passover celebration amongst him and his disciples. And when I say disciples, I want us to understand literally that word means follower. We usually assume it was Jesus and the 12 disciples, but there could have certainly been other close followers of Jesus. So we know it was a group of at least 13 maybe as many as 20 or 30 different individuals. So to simply go to somebody's home and go, we're going to use your upstairs, would have been more than an imposition. In a situation like this, it's just logical. It makes sense that some prearrangement might have been made. And if you notice, this is a pretty accurate description of most inns in Jerusalem at that time. It was kind of a compound where you would have several, several buildings, several upper rooms. And so when Jesus sends Peter and John, ask where the teacher, where his guest room is, it just simply makes sense that there had been arrangements made, and since they were in Jerusalem and a lot of people were travelers, all of the upper rooms would have been rented out, and he had pre-designed one of them would be for him and for his followers. 
Now, to fully understand what this lesser-known character does, I need to begin by telling you that most of the pictures about the Lord's Supper is wrong, and maybe you already knew that. No offense to Mr. Da Vinci, but this isn't right whatsoever. They didn't all sit at a table upright and then all kind of face one way. I, I, it's a beautiful picture, don't get me wrong, but it's not how it worked. What the lesser man needed to do to arrange his upper room was literally they would take a big table and it would be up against one wall. And then around that table, there would be a series of cushions. It was a very low table. And traditionally what you did was you leaned on your left elbow, because most people are right-handed, and then you would eat with your right hand. Now given the size of this group, you can imagine the work that this man had to go through, or maybe have his servants do if he had servants, to get this room ready. But there's one other thing that you need to do, and it has to do with this word hetoimos. It's simply translated as ready. But that doesn't really scratch the surface. The word talks about appropriate preparations. We might use the proper word accommodations. If I could go so far, if I was to translate this section into your Bibles, I would use the word, this man optimized the room for Jesus and his followers. Quite literally, he bent over backwards to make sure that this room was ready for Messiah to celebrate not just the Passover, but the final Passover of his life. And if you're going to yourself, wait a minute, this, this is all supposed to be about making a difference. So how can setting up a room really change somebody's life? Well, one of the other things of the pandemic, and now post-pandemic, is more people are going out to eat again. If you'd like to understand the point I'm trying to make, take a group of at least eight people, more would really prove the point, walk into the restaurant and tell them, we've got a, a group of 10, 12 people we'd like seated. First of all, they're gonna give you a look like, what on earth are you doing, are you crazy? Nobody brings that many people into a restaurant anymore. Trust me, we've had to go through this. They don't even take reservations for any more than five people anymore. But ask them to put a couple of tables together and the wait staff is going to give you a look like that. You expect me to go out of my way to actually move these chairs and move these tables together just to accommodate you. And if they're actually willing to do it, then the expectation is that you will show your gratitude for them doing their job, and that will be reflected in the size of the gratuity that you leave for them. Trust me, I've been through this recently. It seems like nobody actually wants to be helpful anymore. It's, I don't know, uh, uh, outcome of the pandemic, or if it's just a place where we're at in our society today, but people are struggling to be civil, much less nice or helpful to each other. I don't know if that's your experience, but it's mine. One of the things that I pledge to do personally, and I'm not saying you should do this, it's just something that I wanted to do to make a difference. I've gone the extra mile to actually hold doors open for people or to say hello, to say thank you. And it, it's kind of something I was raised to do anyway. And some of the looks I get, people cannot actually believe somebody's doing that. I held the door to the gas station the other day and somebody looked at me like, what are you doing? I, you don't need to hold that for me. I go, it's my pleasure. And I kind of smiled and went on in. I thought, well, maybe I didn't change their whole day, but for a few moments, they were reminded that we have been put into a world that God actually expects us not just to get along, but to be helpful to each other. And so you understand that this man wasn't just being nice 
Or there was some agreement according to the rental, you know, all, all the fees that Jesus would have to pay in order to use this upper room. There is one other thing we should consider. And it has to do with Matthew's account. It's a part of the dialogue that Mark and Luke don't include, but Matthew does. The teacher says, my appointed time is near. And this man would understand what that meant. You have to understand, it's not just the preparations for the Passover need to be made. This personal pro pronoun, my appointed time, it told this man that Messiah was on his way to celebrate Passover because this would be the last one. The appointed time of the Passover, not only according to Jewish tradition, but the Old Testament scriptures teach us is that when the Lamb of God would be sacrificed to take away the sin of the world. I can't tell you that this man had a, a huge, big faith, but I do know that he trusted that the man who was going to be using one of his upper rooms was somebody special. And he wanted to help. And he was willing to bend over backwards because it made a difference for our Savior. And if you don't think it makes that big of a difference, then what he facilitated was the very context in which our Lord gave us the Lord's Supper, something that we still celebrate together today. This act of kindness, this making a difference in the life of Jesus and the disciples is something that echoes on even in this day and age. I hope, if nothing else, you can appreciate how God has created us, that he hardwired within us this need for relationship and this deep desire to actually make a difference in other people's lives. To reinforce that for you, I want to I use a video. I've used it before, but it, it's so appropriate. It's a little bit longer, so bear with me. And if at the end of this video you aren't encouraged to not only pray for those people who've made a difference in your lives, but then also to ask God to move you to be this kind of a person, then let the words of Scripture themselves be that encouragement that we all need to actually want our lives to make a difference. It's been 20 years since I graduated high school. Tonight's the big 20-year class reunion. Do I look like I've been out of high school for 20 years? Okay, never mind. I answered my own question. If I'm not mistaken, this right here, this was Mrs. Tomlinson's geometry class. And now it's a science lab. But okay, this class, I was never very good in geometry, and I'd always protest, why do I need geometry? I'll never use geometry in all my life. And she'd always smile at me and say, wait till you get older, you'll be glad you did this. And you know what? I still never use it. The real reason why I came down this hallway was to find a locker. Okay, right here. This locker, this was Stacy Bell's locker. She was uh, my best friend in high school. She introduced herself to me when I was in seventh grade. She like picked me out of a crowd, it seemed like. But you know, we became friends. I mean, we shared everything together. We were supposed to bring pictures of high school memories and stuff like that. Okay, I brought a picture of uh, me and Stacy at our senior prom. Um, I know, I look like Harry Potter. But if there was one person that I could see at this 20-year reunion, it'd be her. She changed my life in some ways. I'll never forget her. I'll never forget that day. I was walking down this hallway, and I dropped my books, right? I mean, they went everywhere. And everyone's just walking by, and, and I'm trying to pick them up. And you can imagine me bending down to pick up books was a whole production. And this pretty blonde girl was standing, she was standing about right here at her locker. And all of a sudden, she looks down at me trying to get the books, and, and she's like, let me help you with those. And I'm like, okay, you know? She picks up my books and looks at me, and she's, hi, my name is Stacy. And I'm like, hey, I'm Dennis. 
She's like, how about I carry these to your next class for you? And I'm like, how about you do that, you know? So Stacy carries my books to class. By the time we got there, I think that I know everything about her because she's just talking and talking. And then she sits my books on my desk and starts to walk out. And I'm thinking to myself, well, good for you. You did your good deed of the week, you know? And then she turns around. She goes, hey, Dennis, I've got a great idea. Some of my friends and I are going roller skating tomorrow night. How about you join us? And I'm like, yeah. Uh, I don't do so well on wheels. She kind of laughed and she said, it's okay, I will help you. I said, okay. So that next night, I find myself at a roller skating rink with Stacy and her friends. I don't know who was more scared, me or the guy I handed my money to and said, size nine and a half, please. And I sat on the side, while Stacy and her friends were roller skating for a while, but it felt good just to be part of a group. And then Stacy skates over out of nowhere and says, Dennis, come on out and skate. And I'm like, no, no, I'm cool, I'm cool. And she's like, no, come on. I'm like, serious, huh? She goes, come on, I will help you. I was like, okay. So Stacy helped me out on the roller skating rink. You should have seen everybody's eyes. I just looked at him and said, it's okay. I'm a professional skater. <laughs> but with Stacy's help, I made it all the way around the skating rink twice. It was so awesome. As Stacy was dropping me off at my house that night, she said, Dennis, I got another good idea. Tomorrow, my family is having a cookout and going swimming. Why don't you join us? And I was like, yeah, um, this body don't float, you know? She said, it's okay, I will help you. I said, okay. So there I was that next day, standing in the shallow end of Stacy's pool. <laughs> I was like, we, <laughs> you know, Stacy started laughing. She goes, Dennis, the shallow end's no fun. Come on in the deep end with me. I was like, no, no, it's okay. She goes, no, come on. I was like, no, I, I'm cool. She goes, Dennis, come on. I will, and I stopped her. And I said, I know, you will help me. But she did. She held out her arms and helped me float in the water. It was so great. After we'd finished swimming, we were eating. And she was telling me her dreams. I tell you, I really believe that girl could change the world. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she turns the tables on me. She looks at me and she says, hey, Dennis, tell me about your dreams. And I'm like, well, I don't really have any dreams. She goes, come on, everybody's got dreams. And I was like, no, not me. And she just kept persisting. And I got so frustrated with her. And so finally, I looked at her and I said, okay, you want to know my dream? I'll tell you my dream. In my dream, these old hands, they are no longer crippled. And I can pick up things and throw things and, and it's no problem. And in my dream, my hip is right in place. And I can walk and run and jump just like everybody else. And I said, in my dream, I don't need these old glasses to see anymore. And in my dream, my mouth is normal, just like everybody else's. And I'm just like everybody else. But then I realize, 
it's only a dream. We sat there in silence for quite a while. And then Stacy looked at me, and I'll never forget what she said. She said, Dennis, that's the dumbest dream I've ever heard. And I was like, well, you sure know how to make a cripple guy feel good. She said, no, no, Dennis, you don't get it. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. And I looked at her and I said, no, Stacy, you don't get it. I'm a joke. And she just shook her head at me. Dennis, God does not look as man looks. She said, sure, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart, Dennis. And you have a great heart. I like to think she was right. I hope I do have a good heart. I know she had a great heart, and that girl changed my life. You know how I said there was one person I want to see at this reunion? Stacy? She's not here. She's not coming. When I think about her, I think about Galatians 6.10. She epitomizes this. Therefore, as we have opportunities, let us do good for all people. She was just good. She found opportunities to love God and love others. I use her in the past tense because uh, Stacy, she died in a car wreck our freshman year in college. Jesus gave us a visual in Matthew 10, 42, and he talks about kindness and compassion. It's almost as if you give a cup of cold water to somebody. That's what she did for me. She gave me a cup of cold water and she pointed me toward God. She did it for me, she did it for a lot of people. She had a bumper sticker that said, my life is dedicated to saving your life. I'm part of her legacy. So much so, I'm still talking about it 20 years later. I will help you. Not for fame, not for fortune, but it's because it's what we were created to do. And by the gift of faith, it's what we're recreated to do. I will help you. I don't know if you noticed, there's a lot of little episodes like this, and let me just connect some of the final dots between what we think and know and what God created deep in our hearts. The reason why we want to make a difference in other people's lives is because that's exactly how God designed us, to be in a relationship, a helpful relationship. We don't know the guy's name who was carrying the jug of water, but God used him to bring him, the disciples, to that house. We don't know the guy's name who owned the house, but he bent over backwards to help our Lord celebrate his final Passover with his followers. As I mentioned, what he did echoes even to today. Peter and John, we always remember for the big things. But are they really the ones that changed their lives, or was it them preparing the final necessary preparations for that Passover meal, which not only gave us the Lord's Supper, but ultimately was the springboard into what comes next. Our Lord's arrest, his trials, and then ultimately his being nailed to the cross to pay for our sins and to restore our lives. I will help you. They helped us. Let me just give you an example of this with what we're doing right now. <clears throat> 
When it comes to the church, and I'm using this figuratively, the big things we pastors get acknowledged for. In fact, you did that last Sunday. And if you didn't see the email, if you haven't read it in your worship folder, let me do it personally. Thank you for all the cards, the gifts, the meal, all of the congratulations and warm wishes. And hopefully you understand that while we know you appreciate what we do for you, we are grateful for the opportunity to serve God and to serve you. But the reality is, is what we do doesn't change your life in the way that you might think. And we're not the ones that God specifically designates to do this. You stop to think about the person who made your coffee this morning. And you might think, well, that's not a life-changing event. It didn't really make a difference. But show up here some Sunday and there's no coffee. It'll make a difference for at least today. What about the people? Or, uh, today it's Dave back in the sound booth. He makes sure we're on the right slide. He makes sure that everything's working back there so that up here we aren't distracted and we can deliver the message of God's word to you. What about the people who clean up after we leave and do the recycling and pick up all the little odds and ends? And you might not think that's life-changing, but if you walk in and it's a pigsty, you're going to go, I'm not sure I want to be here. Or at least the devil's going to use it to distract us. If one of us pastors isn't at the door to open it and welcome you, what about the people who are? You see, oftentimes we want it to be these big, world-changing events. And God says, I'm going to leave that to somebody who's uniquely called to do that, his son. But as far as making a difference in other people's lives, God says, I want you to do that. So give thanks to God for those people who have made that difference in your life. And again, I would encourage you to ask God to offer the opportunities and open your eyes to do them so that maybe it's something you do, maybe it's some simple act of love, as you live out your faith, as you keep your wick trimmed until Christ returns, that your life can truly make a difference. A lot of people are going to think, well, that's just what Christians are supposed to do, right? The reality is, no, that's not why we do it. It's not just to be Christian. The reason the Lord wired us this way, the reason the Lord uses his scripture to encourage us to live this way, isn't just to be Christian, it's to be more like Christ because what he did made the ultimate difference and he simply gives us the opportunity to reflect that same kind of love in our day-to-day lives because eventually this will all come to an end here you're going to get up and walk and you're going to have seven more days to actually put this lesson into practice a lesson from some guy who we don't even know his name but he did make a difference. What if we were known more for what we love instead of what we hate? Would that make a difference? What if we spent more time loving people and less time being angry with them? Would that make a difference? What if we gave unconditionally of our time, our talent, our treasures? Would that make a difference? What if we shared the difference Jesus has made in our lives and stopped pushing away those who aren't there yet? Would that make a difference? What if we walked in the steps of our Savior, sitting with the broken, caring for the poor, loving the lost, would that make a difference? We live in the midst of ruins, 
surrounded by brokenness, pain, and loss. It's a moment made for us, a calling we were created to answer, not with judgment, not with harsh words or self-righteousness, but with love, the love of Jesus. What if the church acted like the church? Would that make a difference?